Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey there, it's Kristen. Hi, it's just me again. I'm wishing you a happy Halloween. I had so much fun up here in the intro that I think I'm going to be doing the intros from now on all by myself with the spooky news updates. Happy Halloween, first and foremost. Hope that you are all um, ready with your costumes. If you haven't already seen uh, the costumes that Jenny and I uh, donned for you this Halloween, well, that might mean they're just not up on social media yet and you should follow us at Buffering Cast uh, or you just haven't looked. And you should. You should. I'm not going to give it away, but it's pretty on theme with this uh, episode that we're discussing today. And I'm really proud of us. Uh, for our ingenuity. Thank you very much. Uh, You'll also see later today that uh, Sam, Sam had a little costume too. So um, you should check those things out. Really looking forward to seeing your continued costumes. We've already seen some amazing uh, Buffy themed costumes from you and also some really great pumpkins, some with our very own logo carved into them. You always all do Halloween very right. So uh, enjoy, eat a bunch of candy, be safe, Uh, And I'm going to just transition us now right into um, a new segment that I've made up for us called Spooky News. So for this week's Halloween Spooky News, I pulled up a story that's actually um, about a month old. It's from mid-September. But I think we should all just like take a walk through it together. Okay, so there's this mom who lives in Ipswich with, I don't know if that's how you say it, I-P-S-W-I-C-H, Ipswich, right? Ipswich? Cool. Uh, Who lives in Ipswich with her two kids, right? So she's being woken up every night to this far away but kind of loud rendition of children singing, it's raining, it's pouring. The nursery rhyme, or it's not a nursery rhyme. What is it? A nursery song? Whatever. You get it. It's a weird, creepy. So she's being woken up in the middle of the night to this horrible, horrific thing. She waits months, okay? This mom waits months. She's like waking up every night, just like, wow, talk about a haunting. And then finally, she decides, I'm gonna call the Ipswich Borough Council and like report this shit. So she calls and like bless the Ipswich Borough Council because they send their rapid response team to the site. They join the woman at the scene when the creepy, creepy stuff is playing and they go out to investigate. So these Police officers? I'm assuming that's what a council is. I don't know because I'm from the United States where we say things differently, but I'm pretty, I get the sense that these were like policemen uh, who tracked the music down to an industrial like premises basically on the neighboring road where the music was playing through a loudspeaker. So listen to this. I can't get over it because I saw this story. Like I saw this like spider children sons, and I didn't read it and so the piece that like I really didn't know was that what they found out was that this music this creepy ass and I'm gonna play you a little bit of the music this creepy ass music that was playing was designed to act as a deterrent to trespassers and it was activated by motion sensors so um I, I read an article on the Ipswich Star where a spokesman from the industrial site said and I quote 
The sound is only supposed to act as a deterrent for opportunistic thieves that come onto our property. It's designed only to be heard by people on our private land. So let's just, like, record scratch stop here for a second, okay? Because this site, they were like, what should we do to keep thieves away? And they were like, I know, I know. Creepy ass fucking children singing this fucking song will keep, will like terrify, will like terrify a thief, which is like on point. I've just like never heard of this system of um, like (laughs) property protection before. So anyhow, apparently, apparently the fucking motion sensors, so the volume was set wrong. So it was blasting instead of just like being on their property, being like, small scary it was loud volume scary and the problem the reason it was going off in the middle of the goddamn night was because spiders were crawling across the fucking lenses of the cameras and triggering the fucking motion sensors so if that's not a fucking spooky news halloween ass story for all of you i don't know what is Some big-ass spiders were crawling across a camera that was a motion sensor to play creepy-ass kids singing creepy-ass music to deter thieves, and neighbors were just waking up in the middle of the night. So I'm going to play... This is a... I I took this sound clip from the Ipswich Star. Uh, This is them on the property. They got a recording of the sound. So this is what they were being woken up to. Cool. So I hope no one ever sleeps again. You know, we can all just like text each other, tweet at each other in the middle of the night um, because we'll all never sleep again. Great. A couple more things before we get into today's very special uh, Hush episode, which contains, of course, interviews with Doug Jones and Camden Toy and Rishi Hearway, uh, and of course, Jenny Owen Youngs, uh, who wrote the song together. Rishi and Jenny wrote the song together. We're going to get there. Before we do, um, I want to tell you a few things. One, I want to remind you that we have some pretty awesome stuff in our store right now. We have socks that are buffering socks. We have a new t-shirt that's Buffy Forever, not to mention like other tees that are fairly new still, like support your local alewife, and old classics like Smash the Demon Lizard Patriarchy. Uh, it's Halloween, which means it's Christmas, you know, so I'm just saying like, like, get it in your little heads that, like, if you need to get some gifts for people, these make pretty good gifts. And um, speaking – oh, well, let me tell you first where to get those gifts. You can go to BufferingTheVampireSlayer.com and click on Shop. Speaking of gifts, today is a great day because you get a bonus episode from us, which means you get two episodes today. You get our episode, and you also get Angel on Top, and Angel on Top is talking about fucking parting gifts today. And so I don't know if you're familiar with the Angel verse. But um, if you are, you know that there is a gift that was given to a certain someone who we love very much uh, when someone else who we also love departed. So that's what this episode is about. I coded it to protect us all from spoilers, but you should definitely go on over there and check out uh, Laura Zach and Brittany Ashley talking about parting gifts this week. Uh, One thing I want to mention, totally off totally off topic in terms of Buffy and Angel, but on topic in terms of like we're queer. I mean, all all of us, everyone is gay.com. Uh, but I'm queer. Jenny's queer. Brittany's queer. Angel's queer. It's pretty queer little land over here. And um, I have two good friends. Their names are Michelle and Barbara, and they are brilliant filmmakers. They actually uh, did a documentary that was on HBO called Packed in a Trunk 
which is a brilliant, brilliant documentary all about uh, it's it's very queer, actually. And it's all about an artist um, who many years ago um, in the early 1900s was out as uh, a lesbian in Provincetown and was basically um, put into an institution uh, and all of her artwork was packed away in the documentary follows um that like they sort of like unpack both her art which was been literally packed away in a trunk and also her life which was packed away which was you know her in an institution for reasons that are, are really disturbing and upsetting um and it's really powerful it's really beautiful so i encourage you to watch it but the reason i bring it up is because they're making a new film and it's called it's not a burden and it's uh taking a close look at uh aging parents um many of us have parents uh, and many of us are seeing our parents age now and so this is a look at uh, taking care of aging parents it's going to be really beautiful and they're gathering funding for it right now and you know that we love to support queer work here and especially you know these are people near and dear to our hearts and we know they do incredible work you can learn more about that film at it's not a burden.com and you can donate to support the creation of that film there and of course check out packed in a trunk which is available now it's on hbo Okay, last but not least, a uh, couple of events coming up, which you probably know about already because we talk about them every episode. Uh, we are going to London. It's coming up soon, November 30th to December 2nd. We will be at Vampire Ball. We cannot wait. I cannot wait to play James Marsters, The Spike Jingle. Just saying. Uh, January 19th and 20th, we will be at PodCon in Seattle. Um, and you can find information about all of that and any of our other upcoming events on our website, bufferingvampireslayer.com. Now, I am going to put my voice on a little wooden box so that we can get into this episode already. to a very special bonus episode of Buffering the Vampire Slayer, where we do a deeper dive into season four, episode 10, Hush. Yes. Jenny, don't you think that because it's Halloween, we should give them just a little bit of our song from Halloween? <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Here you go. Halloween. It's supposed to be a slow night. Giles promised it'd be no night for vamp activity. But somebody, somebody, had a differing opinion. Giannis's devoted minion came to Sunny D and brought some anarchy. It's the big Halloween switcheroo. It's the big Halloween switcheroo. You don't even know who you're gonna be. It depends where you got your costume to see. It's the big Halloween. Wow, I wonder who wrote the beautiful melody of that song. I just <laughs> I just wonder, like, I mean, it's like one of us has so much training in music and the other one is just like a born natural. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, when you listen to that chorus and you compare it to the choruses of all the other buffering <laughs> songs, it's just really it's a cut above. It's really yeah. I mean, obviously, like I didn't need music theory at all is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, no, it just like came from within you. It did. Uh, it really did. Um, okay, so we're here for a second episode. I think, Jenny, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time we've ever done two episodes for one episode, right? 
Uh, yeah. Uh, and that's because it's Hush. And, you know, I think there are maybe a handful, maybe one or two other episodes in the series that will wind up expanding out into Oof. two. Uh, but mm-hmm. we we just had so much content. Uh, last, last week's episode on Hush was already two hours long, even knowing that we had another episode. In today's episode, you're going to be getting a little bit of Jenny and I, of course, but you're also going to be getting the complete interviews that I did with Doug Jones and Camden Toy. Those are the two lead gentlemen. Uh, so we'll get those in their in their entirety. Plus, we'll get an interview that I did with both you, Jenny, and with Rishi, Rishi Hereway, in case you uh, weren't listening last week, or if you just have had your head in the sand, who is just a brilliant human on so many levels, who does Song Exploder, who does the West Wing Weekly, who has uh, the one AM radio, and, uh, you know, who made this most beautiful song of all time with you, Jenny. Uh, yes, yes. Yes. And um, a note on that song. Wow. If you listened to last week's episode, you heard uh, our our song and the way that it was structured was that uh, there was a vocal and a lyric that uh, goes, you know, verse one, pre-chorus one, chorus one. And then at the just after the first few syllables of verse two, Buffy, me, uh, loses her voice and uh, is replaced by a beautiful piano um, extrapolation on the melody uh, performed by Ben Thornwell. And um, before Buffy finally gets her voice back at the end of the song. So um, what we've what we went ahead and did was we made two versions of the song, the version you heard last week and the version you'll hear at the end of this episode, which features the complete lyric and full vocal that Rishi and I wrote together before we extracted, you know, verse two, pre-chorus two, chorus two and the bridge. Uh, So you'll hear the rest of what Buffy was thinking about. and whoops, we accidentally just wrote a love song for Riley uh, against all odds. And you'll hear us talk about that later in our conversation in this episode. Um, and just a practical note, all of our uh, Patreon supporters who receive songs every week will receive this second version of the song. And then when the uh, album of season four songs eventually comes out, when we wrap up this season, uh, that song will be available as a, this version of the song, the full lyric version of the song will be available as a bonus track at the the end of the album. So you'll you'll be able to get both versions either now or then, depending wow. on what your vibe is. Wow. It's just so generous of you. <laughs> and I. And you get a song. <laughs> and you get a song. Look under your chair. There's a song. Great. <laughs> also, I just want to give you a little nod, Jenny, that um, you used both extrapolate and extracting in your uh, description of the the song. So just a nice job all around with your word Thank usage. you so much. You're welcome. I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, I paid for all these words. <laughs> I'm just trying to get my money's worth. <laughs> um, so before we get into the first interview, we're going to start with Doug Jones. Uh, I just wanted to say that in between the segments, Jenny and I thought we would take this uh, podcast real estate to our advantage to touch upon a couple of things that we missed. Somehow, even though we talked for two hours, we, we missed a few things. For now, a few very important things. Yeah, a few very important things. And so we're going to get to a couple of emails from you all and and things that you wanted to hear us talk about that we did not. But before we do that, we're going to just talk about a little moment (laughs) that, um, (laughs) so, (laughs) so Jenny and I did a live watch as we, a Buffy watch of Hush with all of our patrons as we are wanted to do sometimes. And during the live watch, we just like had a laughing fit about something that we hadn't discussed in the main episode, which is a moment, Jenny, that happens right at the end. Do you want to talk to them about this just brilliant delivery, oh, uh, brilliant comedy my. that we get? God, 
<laughs> so it's the end of the episode. Everybody's wrapping their shit up. Olivia's like, I don't know. It might be too scary. And Willow and Tara are like in the common area at college and talking about how like Willow's really powerful and how like the Wicca group sucks. And then Tara says, <laughs> Tara says, I think if they saw a witch, they would run the other way. And then like laughs at her own. Are we calling this a joke? She's just like, she like rushes to get run the other way out of her mouth so that she like can say it before she starts laughing at it. Yeah, because it's, so it tickles her so much. Her joke is, it's Tara, it is, it is, we're calling it a joke because it's Tara's favorite joke. It's her favorite. Yes, yes. She, okay. It's in Tara's diary. She's like, guys, today, today. Today I made the best joke. I made my favorite joke of all time. They saw which Aww. they would run the other way. Oh, we love you, Tara. We love you. Great job. Uh, <laughs> so thank you for indulging us in a giggle uh, about that line from Tara. And um, Jenny, I think if you're down, we should maybe hear my conversation with the wonderful, brilliant, <gasps> incredible Doug Jones. Yes, yes, yes. Let's do it right now. Doug Jones, our entire buffering verse is beside themselves, literally, that you're talking with us today. So thank you so much for taking the time out to be here with all of us. Well, thank you for that beside yourself reaction. I was not expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the internet doesn't lie. And I shared with the internet that you and I were going to be speaking today. And I think it's one of our most liked tweets in all of history. So no. <laughs> that's just a little nod to how beloved your character is in the Buffyverse. Oh, that's very kind. Just one episode. I was never expecting that, you know? <laughs> yes, but what an episode. We're in, obviously, you know, season four, and people have just been waiting and waiting and waiting for us to get to Hush. The gentlemen are notorious. They, they embody, as you know, this silent, slow-moving horror that is the stuff of my nightmares. I think many of our nightmares. I'd love to start by talking about your physical presence, which obviously you bring to so many of your roles. Uh, I thought it would be cool to maybe hear about your training in physical acting and how you learned to do what it is that you do. Ah, well, uh, actually, my training in physical acting started with my training in acting. Uh, I never set out to be monsters in my early days. I never thought that was a career option. I was inspired by uh, sitcoms and variety shows when I was a kid. I Things that made you feel good, tap your toes and laugh. That's what I was after. <laughs> boy, did I, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Barking up the wrong tree. But um, in college at, at Ball State University in Indiana, I discovered the art of mime. And I joined a mime troupe there called Mime Over Matter. Get it? <laughs> I do, I do. Okay. And uh, so it was that art form that really woke up my entire body to all of the visual communication that we do every day as, as just regular human beings who aren't mimes, you know, so much is communicated through our, our posturing, our gestures, our, our body language, our facial expressions so much, uh, that it can change, it can change our words drastically. You know, you can say, uh, get out of town in so many different ways with visuals that, that mean that could be anything from joking to actually please get out of town. Right. right. So, uh, so I learned all that, uh, at an early, at an early age, um, with, uh, with performing with a mime troupe where words were not spoken. So you, we, we did not have the luxury of verbal dialogue. We had to, had to use visual dialogue. So that was, that was early training. I also at the, at Ball State University, uh, we were the fighting Cardinals. 
And that meant that there was a mascot in a big bird suit. And I, I played Charlie Cardinal at the basketball games for my junior and senior year. So to manipulate a big red bird suit and make it come to life for, uh, you know, a, a, an arena full of, of screaming fans was, uh, was again, very useful for what, what, what was to come. Wow. From a bird suit to the scariest monster on television. <laughs> right. Right. So how did you come to this part in particular? Like, how did you come to Buffy? Did you audition or did they seek you out for the part having known your previous work? Well, remember, this was 1999. So that's 19 years ago. Uh, and that's back before um, I had much of a name in the public eye. I was more, I was known by creature effects makeup people. Uh, I've been because I've been already working with them for, you know, roughly 10, 11 years by then. But when, but a lot of casting directors did not know who I was. Um, creature people did, but like standard showbiz people did not. So a casting notice was put out in the breakdowns uh, looking for these silent gentleman characters on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And my agent at the time knew of my background and knew of my of the creatures I'd played thus far in my career and just submitted me for an audition. So I did indeed get that call, went to the audition. It was straight to callbacks. There, uh, so that means that the room was full of producers and Joss Whedon himself. So that was rather intimidating to walk into that. Uh didn't have any script or sides to work from it's because it was a silent character. So, so we just kind of, you know, off the cuff in the room, uh, Joss said, okay, uh, I want you to pretend like there's someone lying in front of you and I want you to gently and gentlemanly, uh, cut his heart out. If you'd be, and, and, and smile as big as you can the entire time. <laughs> so, so that's like, huh, a little, un, a little unsettling. Sure. If you, if you talk to Camden Toy ever, he was the other lead gentleman. He, the two of us were, were the two main ones. And there were I think there were six of us total. There was, so there was four other gentlemen that were, that were uh, featured around us, but we were the two focal ones. Camden and I have similar stories of, of that audition. What was really a compliment to both of us was that Joss liked our creepy smiles so much as people, just as people walking in off the street. He thought, we, he thought we both had the kind of smiles that made him get the heebie-jeebies. So... <laughs> He had Camden's and my makeup redesigned. But if you look at the the background um, gentlemen, they have smiles kind of plastered on in the mask of their face. Uh, he had our makeup designed so that it would it would it would actually glue down to our own lips so that we could manipulate our own smile. And they put uh, metallic dentures in our mouth so that we could use our own mouths and our own smiles because he liked ours better than what was uh, than the actual design that was on the outside of the masks. So that, that was a, a last minute redo. It was a huge compliment to Camden and me. Incredible. So is it a compliment to be told that you have a creepy smile? In that world, in that world, absolutely. <laughs> the highest compliment. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about the practical elements, too. So now you're cast in the role, the lead gentleman, and there's so many reasons why these characters stick in my mind. I think many of our minds, one of which is this glidy, drifting movement. You know, I've read a little bit about the fact that there were some dollies, there were some wires, and I know we'd all love to hear about some of that from you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, uh, that was a part of, of, of that whole gentlemanly posturing uh, was that fluidity in the, of the hands and a tilt of the head. Uh, that was all very much a part of what Camden and I both came up with that Joss loved. And that's the thing is that, that I, Camden and I have remained friends to this day, by the way. 
because we, we, we understand that part of each other. <laughs> so the practicality of it all, though, part, part of, the, of that fluidity and, and gliding mannerism uh, would be that we were floating about six inches to a foot off the ground. Um, and we just kind of like floated down hallways, floated around the campus uh, I, while our footmen did all the grunt work on the ground for us. Um, I, that was such a genius move to, to have us float and not walk because walking might have destroyed that fluidity and that, that, that glide that we had. But to pull it off meant some pain and agony for all of us because I, uh, when you saw us full body, uh, like, like there's a couple exterior scenes where we're uh, you know, around the campus going down a sidewalk uh, or in the streets with a clock tower uh, in the town square uh, or, or coming down the hallway of the dorm rooms. If you saw us full body, that was that was Camden and I both in hip harnesses under our clothes with wires that came out the hip bone area up, up past our shoulders and, and up to a T-bar that, that was running along a track that you couldn't see. And the, and somebody, some poor schmuck had to pull pull us along. And then if you saw us maybe from from uh, just the waist up or a close up of us gliding into frame or out of frame, uh, that was us standing on a platform with wheels on it. And that was extremely precarious because there was no way to really strap us in to those. It was just basically balance on this piece of wood with wheels under it and hope that the guy manipulating that uh, comes to a slow stop or a, a gentle start. <laughs> Otherwise, you're, it's like, ah! you know. <laughs> so, so you're surfing for, for part of the episode. The gentlemen are surfing. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Oh, gosh. You know. Incredible. Will you um, will you tell us a little bit about the makeup? I'm sure you have endless makeup stories from your career in general, but we'd love to hear about this particular makeup. Sure. Uh, 32 years of makeup stories. But the gentleman, you know, the gentleman on Buffy was uh, was a particularly uh, beautiful design. I mean, you know, the, I've had the best makeup artists in the world uh, with their put their hands on my face. And uh, Todd McIntosh was the head of the uh, makeup department uh, on set makeup applications. And he did me personally. Um, and, uh, it was about a four hour process. Now, uh, it was not a full body head to toe thing. Of course it was a head and hands because we wore, uh, human clothes, right? We had those beautiful long, uh, black suits with the, almost the, the coat going all the way down, down to the knee almost. It was really, uh, which I love those. I love that whole look too. It was very vintage and very like, what era do they come from? We didn't know. So, that was a prosthetic then. Uh, so we had to they put a bald cap on us first. Uh, and then over that went this, uh, the cowl and face pieces that would glue together seamlessly and, uh, and, and the paint job that, that had to blend the darkness around our eyes out to the mask itself. And, and uh, it was, uh, it just took a lot of artistry and a lot of time. So four hours is a long time when the pieces have been pre uh, there's been a, a pre-sculpting job and a pre-molding job and a pre-paint uh, job that just gets them started. But then uh, Todd on the day, they did all the finishing touches and applied it to me. And that took the, the real artistry there too. Uh, and, and aside from aside from the metallic teeth as uh, the denture teeth that slid over our own teeth, we also had uh, those reddish uh, contact lenses as well. So it, it also made it, our, our pupils very small and very cold looking, even though we were, you know, again, dipping the head and smiling gently. It was like, mm, something's wrong. Very, very wrong. Uh, yeah, yes. Something, something is very, very wrong <laughs> indeed. Um, so I want to talk to you just a little bit about working with Camden. I know you worked so closely together and I'm wondering if you had things that the two of you did together to get yourself so in sync. I mean, you were just so perfectly in tune with each other. 
I, that, we didn't have to work at it, honestly. Uh, Camden also had a background as a mime. So uh, there's something about, you know, and mimes are not beloved around the world, by the way. <laughs> so I think once you've, once you've uh, weathered the, the, the storm of being a mime, being hated for it, you know, and yet still pulling some kind of artistry off through that art form, uh, I, think, I think that's bonding anyway. And, and, and Camden also does have, he's got very fluid hands and very, he, he understands when you talk to him in person, just as Camden, he also does what I do. We flap our hands around. We, we can't we can't gesture or make enough facial expressions. Uh, we just have to we have to do a lot to make sure everybody's hearing us. <laughs> so we understood each other immediately. Yeah, totally. As someone who's half Italian, I identify with that very much. No, of course, right? The hands in the air, the the, the mushing of the face, like, come here, you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, okay, let's hear a little bit about the character. You know, like, it sounds like since you were cutting out a heart in the audition process, there was a clarity to these characters before you arrived. But I'm wondering if you or if you and Camden added elements to the character that weren't there before you specifically took the roles. Hmm, uh... That's I not not that I'm aware of honestly, but J- Joss is such a Joss Whedon, such a visionary that uh, you know when when he explained the characters to us, they were so complete uh, and so so specific, and um, and and like I said from the audition, he liked what he saw and and just reminded us what we did, and 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 so it was just kind of like we hit the ground running with all of that and didn't didn't really need to embellish much. Right. Right. So this next question is kind of related. It comes from Talia, one of our listeners, who says, all of your characters are so distinct, despite often having limited or no lines at all. How do you create their individual physicalities? Hmm. Well, thank you, Talia. Um, True enough, after 32 years of playing characters under lots of rubber bits, the challenge I have is what makes the next one different than all the other ones I've ever played before. so often that will start with a script uh, where I can see what character creature am I playing? How does it fit into the storyline? Um, and I have to approach it like an actor, not like a, not like a, a creature actor. Not, I have to find the heart and soul of a character like any actor would do. So what are his fears, wants, loves, uh, what desires, uh, what are his, what's he after? How does he fit into the story and with the other characters on film as well? Uh, I, I want to see all those relationships and everything. Then, then having a chat with the director to find out what what's the vision from his or her perspective, and uh, and what quirks or or you know subtleties would you like to see? Uh, then then I might uh, depending on how complicated the character is, how otherworldly is it? Are there animal elements? Are there elements of nature thrown in? Or is it an alien form from another planet? All that has to come into play, and I'll take that to uh, a mirrored dance studio or the aerobics room at my 24 hour gym at two in the morning, uh, <laughs> where, right, uh, where I can look at myself in the mirror and find the posture, the resting place, the stance. Uh, what does the script call for? Are there lunges involved? Do I crawl on all fours at some point? Do I crawl up a wall? Do I, do I uh, shriek back in fear? Oh, anything. And I want to see like, how would this character do that? I, I want to get a visual on myself. Then the makeup tests and the cre- and the, uh, the screen tests and the film tests start where they're creating the monster makeups on you. Uh, and you might go into the creature shop ahead of time and, and get for fittings and things. And during that time, you can see, ah, what I was practicing in that mirror may not be, I'm, you know, if, I, if I'm doing something with my arms straight over my head and the costume or makeup inhibits that movement so I can only bend at the elbows, well, then I have to change some things up a little bit and make that a part of the organic ecosystem of this creature. 
So it's a it's a multi layered process that, and then on on the set on the day, I, I hopefully I arrive having all that prep work so that I can be an organic being that woke up that way that day instead of looking like a guy in a suit. Right, right. I'm actually still back where you told us that at your 24-hour gym, you're practicing in the mirror. Um, actually, one of our listeners, Amanda, asked a question about being recognized. What is it like to have played these iconic roles in shows with these intense fandoms, but really, I'm sure, not have that many people recognize your face? You can go to the 24-hour gym and, and maybe not worry about anyone recognizing you? Well, you know, uh, you know, there are glass, there are glass walls in, in the aerobics room of the 24 hour fitness. And, uh, and on the other side are, are buff guys with weights. <laughs> and, and, and so I'll be in there like, you know, up on my tippy toes and my fingers, spindly fingers, like moving about and, and like kind of going ha, ha, ha in a mirror. And I look out the window and like, I'm being watched by guys who are just lifting weights and stuff and they totally don't understand. But uh, about the recognizability in public thing, yes, uh, uh, she would be correct about that a few years ago. Maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I could, I could, go, I, I could go totally unrecognized in public. But with uh, recent years and more recent projects, uh, the amount of press I've gotten um, uh, has been uh, uh, my, my own face, my own real human face has been married up to all my creatures time and time again now. And that would be including everything from guest judging on uh, Face Off on the Sci-Fi Channel, like three different times in three different seasons. Uh, and doing uh, when, you, and when, you, when you go to the Oscars with pa- movies like Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water, all the press that surrounds that event, we've got red carpet things. I was interviewed on the E! Channel with Juliana Rancic and, and so forth and so on. So, so uh, millions of people have seen my real face now and have had the chance to go, oh, that's the guy who plays that character in that movie. Oh, and they look you up on the Webernet because all the kids are using that Webernet now. And, uh, and then they can, you know, you can see somebody's IMDb page and go, oh my gosh, well, look at all these titles that I've seen. And that's the same guy. Ah, so I'm getting more of that now. Uh, so, uh, I'll, I'll get recognized if I, if I go out walking the streets of a, of a city that I'm in, um, uh, I'll get recognized more, more than, than, than I ever used to. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Something that I want to talk to you about just actually one of our listeners just wrote in about this conversation that you had with Guillermo del Toro. You talk about monsters representing the outcasts and the weird guys in society. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that and what that means to you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, that's my personal love and affection for monsters. Guillermo del Toro and I do share that love uh, for them. And I think it's because, to personalize it, um, uh, so many of us in in our early years of life feel like no one gets me. No one understands me. I'm the oddball in the room. I'm sure of it. Even the cool kids always had to fight for that position in their hearts. They were terrified of going to school every day. A lot of us were. So me being very tall, very skinny, and growing up in the Midwest where there's a, a, a narrow sliver of what's considered normal, if you're outside of that narrow normal normalcy, you will be made fun of, period, the end. <laughs> right? So I had to learn. I had to get a, a, a thick, tough skin from the, from the get-go. And so when I saw my first monster movies with Boris Karloff playing the mummy or Frankenstein or, or the creature from the black lagoon, um, uh, with, uh, with, uh, uh, oh gosh, Ben, Ben Chapman and, uh, uh Rico Browning playing that that character, uh, those, I, I could relate to them. I re- I could relate to even Dracula or Nosferatu, um, being hideous beasts of some sort. And yet, uh, with a sympathy, because they, they're just on, they're just trying to survive like anyone else. And, um, and they didn't ask to be 
the way they are. They just they were kind of either born that way or they woke up or someone did that to them. Uh, characters like that always have a sympathetic side that I really do connect with. And I have felt like the monster in the room many, many times in my life. So when playing a monster that has a redemptive, uh, sympathetic storyline, I love that. And if I can quote Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney, of course, the, the father of uh, the man of a thousand faces and, and the, probably the most character driven uh, silent film star in our history. Uh, he also shared a love of the unlovely. Uh, and I, I wrote down a quote of his that I just that I really resonate with. Uh, he said, I wanted to remind people that the lowest types of humanity may have within them the capacity for supreme self-sacrifice. The dwarfed, misshapen beggar of the streets may have the noblest ideals. That is Lon Chaney, ladies and gentlemen. And that's why I revere that man so, so much. Uh, and he played a lot of hideous characters from the Phantom of the Opera to the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and, and, and it goes on and on. Um, but he always played them with heart and soul and redemption. And I, I just, uh, so I, I, I hoped I'd be carrying that torch onward in the modern day. So, so much so, so much so. And, and it's something that we talk about. I was really excited about this question because Jenny and I are both queer women. And by default, of course, our lens on Buffy looks at these things and looks at these themes and what monsters are, what the symbolism is of the show. So it's just really special to get your take on this as, again, one of the most memorable monsters of the series. So um, I have been allowed to ask one question about one of my very favorite movies, which is Hocus Pocus. Aww. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, you know, I at least get one. I just, I figured if I get one question, I really want to hear about the scene where the moths fly out of your mouth because I read they were, in fact, real moths, and I would love to hear about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, first of all, I'm happy 25 years with Hocus Pocus. This is our 25th anniversary year. Uh, it came out in theaters in 1993. Do you believe that? Oh, uh, so No, and it's, it's exciting, but is it? Because I definitely was almost an adult person when I watched it the first time. Oh, so I was 33 when that th movie came out in theaters. So think, <laughs> I'm an old fella now, yeah. <laughs> God, 25 years. Isn't that crazy? Uh, so, but I, I, I love Billy Butcherson, uh, the zombie character. So, so, And I was a zombie before zombies were cool. Okay. Um, <laughs> But, but he's he's near and dear to my heart. I've always always loved him. Uh, the goofy floppiness and 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 also being in a family friendly film, you know, with uh, that under the Disney label. There's so many Disney lovers out there too. But when it came to that one scene with the moths flying out, this is a big a climactic moment for my character because I've been going through the entire movie with my mouth sewn shut. Uh, something that Bette Midler's character did to me in the in the previous world uh, 300 years ago because she she put me in the grave. Uh, with my mouth sewn shut so that I wouldn't tell her secrets in the afterlife. That's the backstory. Well, now it's modern day. She woke me up to help her on her dastardly, uh, you know, uh, evil mission. And, uh, and I end up not being much of a help because I really, I, I take sympathy on the kids that she's after. And I, I really want to help them because I don't really care for her that much, uh, you know, in, in the story. So I finally grab a knife, cut my mouth open and cough out dust and moths. And then I speak for the first time in the movie. This is near the end. Well, this is before 1993, remember, this is before CG uh, uh, computer graphics uh, are what they are now. So back then, it's like the, the, the first answer was to do it practically. Uh, so that would mean a moth trainer came to the set. Uh, I, I, you heard me right. A moth trainer. A man shows up with a cage and a net, and he's ready to, to, to put his real moths in my mouth. Uh, that also required 
a, a dental dam sort of thing where I had an upper and a lower retainer with a, a, a latex sheath between them that would protect my mouth from the moths and their and their their dryness from my moist mouth because uh, moths have to stay dry or they won't fly. Well, when I cut my mouth open, they had to fly out of my mouth. So that was a, quite a, a dance of trying to keep moisture off of those moths when they're inside a human mouth. So uh, and there was also a little, a little cup in there, a fiberglass cup that had two holes at the back of it filled with, with, uh, with sterilized dust that I could then <laughs> cough out of my mouth. So that was a very, a very precisely timed uh, moment in the film. Uh, and so once they placed those, those three moths in my mouth with tweezers uh, on their wings, um, they uh, had to then lightly tack, glue tack those stitches down so that I could cut them in, in the pre, pre-cut uh, slice area of where the knife was going to go. So all this had to be done last minute. Boom, boom, boom. And then, okay, so we're about to do the first take and a light goes, explodes. Boom. And I'm sitting there now all ready to go and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. How long is it going to take to fix? Yeah, hang on. We're going to get away. We're going to fix it. Okay. And I'm like, okay, all the while I can feel the saliva building up in my mouth because, you know, you've got, you've got uh, foreign objects in your mouth. And so you, you, your saliva glands go work overtime to like intruder, intruder, you know, work it out. So, so as, they, as I feel the, the water table rising in my mouth, I'm like, oh crap. They finally got the light fixed and we, we, we roll and then I cut my mouth open and what comes out, but like, all that dust was now mud and the, <laughs> and, the uh, and the poor moths were like, they were just kind of surfing on a string of drool. It just went downward. So we had to, we had to kind of do a little cut, cut and, and reset the entire thing. But take two, we got it. And that's what you see in the movie. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. So I'm really glad that I got to ask my one question about the moths. <laughs> didn't expect that answer, did you? <laughs> I sure didn't. Uh, as much as I want to talk about Hocus Pocus for the rest of this interview, uh, let me careen us back to Hush for just one more second. Uh, are there any stories from that set that you have? Any especially memorable moments? I- I'm sure there are a few, but maybe one in particular that you'd like to share? Oh, uh, I wish I had any memories of... of- of pranks or fun, you know, funny things that happen. But, you know, when you're dealing with discomfort, as any prosthetic makeup will bring, uh, you save all your energy for when the camera rolls. So I don't have a whole lot of like off, you know, between takes like tomfoolery because we were just kind of like, you know, uh, either sitting down or, or, or standing still to like work up our, or muster up our, our strength for the next take. Uh, but my, I do remember uh, that was Amber Benson's first episode, Hush. She was, her character was introduced the same time we were. Uh, but she was such an absolute delight, very meek, very uh, almost shy. And um, she was fascinated with us. Uh, and uh, but but again, she was one of those. She wanted to look at us, but don't get too close because she'd go. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> if, we, <laughs> if we got too close, like, hi, Amber. Good to see you again today. Yeah, you too. Ah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she was just an absolute delight. And also uh, Sarah Michelle Geller uh, as as the lead of the show. Uh, I, we were told by other crew people that that you know uh, there you know depending so many guest roles came and went on that show, and and somebody told us that they could tell. Uh, I think Sarah really likes you guys a lot because she's paying more attention to you than she does most guest stars. So so t- put that feather in your cap. <laughs> so okay, it's a deal. Well, she's smart. She knows what's going to be memorable when she sees it. She knows I hit when she sees one. Yeah, no, but over the years, I, I I must say that like I when you guest star on one episode of a TV show, it's often 
it's often aired, maybe re-aired once, and then you're done forever. This has been a, the most delightful surprise of my television career, honestly, that, uh, that this many, 19 years later, we're still talking about it, and, I, I, and that the fandom has never once faded. The show's been off the air, uh, new episodes anyway, for how long? But it's rerun everywhere, constantly. Buffy Magazine went on for quite a long time afterward. Uh, and so, you know, the interviews and the, and the write-ups and the, and the attention. And even when I do the convention circuit now, uh, whether it's a horror, a horror sci-fi, uh, fantasy, or comic book convention, the Buffy fans are, show up in droves. And that picture on my table is one of the fastest-selling ones I have, believe it or not, to this day. So that is a blessing I was not expecting from this, from this one-time episode thing for me. It's a magical show. I mean, we're talking about it here 20 years later as well, you know, and we have our podcast. It's spoiler free because we have so many listeners who are watching for the first time right now. So oh wow, it just lives on. Yeah. So sweet. So I have one last question for you, Doug, which is what are you afraid of? <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the creepiest monster to you when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah. Um, as far as like film and TV, what 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 is what scared me the most? Um, <clears throat> I meant I did mention my first horror film I ever saw uh, on our late night Friday night uh, show in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, it was hosted by by a guy in ghoulie makeup, and his his name was Sammy Terry. Hello, I'm Sammy Terry. Oh, 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 oh. and he would introduce the movie of the night. Well, it was The Mummy with Boris Karloff, and he uh, oh, just the, I, I'd never even considered the idea. Of, of someone who had been dead for hundreds of years coming back and, and, uh, and it just, uh, uh, and then the close-ups of Boris Karloff had those haunting, haunting eyes. Um, so that terrified me also when I saw Lon Chaney in the Phantom of the Opera also run at late night on TV as a silent film to, uh, the imagery of that character with his upturned nose and his very skeletal face and those, those very wide haunting eyes also. Uh, uh yeah. So the Phantom of the Opera, and uh, and the, the mummy were the two that really uh, seared my soul and still still give me the, give me the shakes if I think about it too long. <laughs> so you heard that, listeners. If you want to continue the horror past hush, you can now go and watch these two things in tandem just to bring it all the way around. <laughs> well, I guess I, I, I speak while we're talking about vampires as well. Uh, I should mention Nosferatu was another a silent film that that uh, that wrecked my childhood, um, and um, and it is the. That was a character, though, uh, that for many years I, I had not played a vampire myself. Uh, I'd played many creatures and ghouls and things, but I'd never played a vampire. So uh, if you'd asked me, you know, 10 years ago, is there a character you haven't played yet to do love to it? But yes, I would like to play a classic old vampire, notably uh, uh, Count Orlock, a.k.a. Nosferatu, if I could. And uh, that opportunity has now come. Uh, it'll be done with post-production in December and hopefully out early next year. That would be... Uh, a remake of Nosferatu where we, I got to play the title character. And, oh my gosh. Um, wow. Yay. So yay. Uh, and so he also, yes, the uh, Max Shrek who played him in the silent film also is an image seared in my young mind uh, that, I, that I've now carried into my adult life. Wow. What an incredible experience to like have as a kid and now to recreate it using your skills and your talent. Also the memory I'm sure of, of what you once watched. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And we also, it was a, a, a technique of filmmaking that, that we did in another silent film uh, remake, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, that came out in 2005, 6, I'm going to say, uh, where it was, we were filmed, we 
we modern day actors were filmed on green screen and plopped into the original film with uh, those other actors digitally taken out. Wow. So uh, that's the process that that we're doing with Nosferatu as well. We would have furniture and props in the foreground and and maybe a door frame and that kind of thing. But there was a green screen screen element to every single shot of the movie. Uh, And what, what fills that green screen is footage from the original film from that setting. So I got to play in the same set that uh, Max Schreck got to play in back in 1922. Oh my gosh, that is so incredible. And talk about like the Venn diagram for all of our listenership here. That is amazing. It's going to be up all of our alleys, so much so. Um, are there any other things that we should look for, Doug, to find out more about you? Well, aside from, from Nosferatu, uh, I'll be looking for Star Trek Discovery Season 2 starting in January uh, on CBS All Access in the States. Um, Space Channel in Canada and Netflix worldwide in 87 other countries. Wow. Okay. So we can literally all watch that. (laughs) I I can't thank you enough, Doug. And I say this both from myself and Jenny and everyone who's listening for sharing your time with us today. It's, It's incredibly special. We have a really wonderful community here and it brings me so much joy to be able to share this interview with them. So thank you so much for being a part of it. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a, it's a true joy to, to, to join the family on, on a moment like this. Thank you. Has there ever been a nicer man? No, there's never been. In all been. of the land? Uh, uh, ever. There's literally never been a nicer man. He What was, a delight. Oh, it's just so kind and lovely and wonderful and generous with his, with his time and his stories. Um, and also probably the only person we'll ever talk to who's had a live moth inside their mouth. Yes. It, it, I mean, I think, although I guess, Jenny, the, the career we found ourselves in, this groove. It, oh, it maybe might, this it, is just the, the beginning. <laughs> it, might, it might be just the first of many, uh, you know, various animals and insects in people's mouths that we discuss. I mean, gosh, when you crack open horror, that's really. Yeah. I can't believe there are moth trainers. Moth trainers. I can't believe moths can be trained. I can't believe that moths are actually pl- like I can't believe that when you see a bug coming out of somebody's mouth that that the bug is in the person's mouth and like that dental dams are used like who knew you know like dental dams serving all sorts of purposes all over the universe sure yes when I was in when I did theater in high school actually um we had to use like the sound crew or the sound people would put the mics that the mic packs that we wore in condoms also so um what which like sticks out why well because because if you sweat like because the mic pack would be like up against your body and so it was like the perfect little latex baggy for something that size and and i don't even know that i would like have remembered that but condoms were like very novel to me in high school you know just like sex condoms Mm -hmm. uh so (laughs) so i remembered for that reason um but it looks like uh contraceptives can be used for many purposes including um keeping moths out of your esophagus and also uh keeping mics dry from sweat well I'll tell you that when I um, had a root canal one time, <laughs> I was uh, shocked and delighted when um, when the person who was uh, doing the procedure uh, told me they'd be putting a dental dam around my tooth. And it all, Kristen, it all fell directly <laughs> into place. And I thought to myself, oh, a dental dam, a, a, a dam, oh. uh, a thing. 
a, a tool that was invented for dental purposes. Oh. So, if, so actually, we're looking at a tool invented for for like oral purposes being used <laughs> in other oral purposes, not a contraceptive. It's actually. Uh, a dental tool being used as a contraceptive, not a contraceptive being used as a wow. mouth tool. It, fascinating. You've just blown my mind here, here to live help. on radio. Uh-huh. On radio? <laughs> or whatever it is we're doing here. <laughs> yeah, whatever we're doing. <laughs> um, okay, so let's, before we get to uh, my interview with Camden Toy, which is just also such a delight, uh, I wanted to bring to light this email that we got several emails from you because you're wonderful people and you want to make sure that we cover all of our bases. Uh, and Natalie over in Bristol wrote in to say, say, uh, Kristen and Jenny, I fucking love this podcast as much as I love Buffy, which is like, that seems, do you really, do you really mean that? Wow. Thank you. How but I you? just, I want to take a pause probably maybe like almost we'll take almost, um, on the last episode of Hush, <laughs> I was excited to potentially hear you both hash out some of the great, deeper, darker metaphors of the episode, such as the gentlemen are the fucking patriarchy. Think about it. They're all men. They're all white. And they're all, quote, Victorian styled, quote, prim and proper. Basically an old fashioned institution who steals people's free speech and rips out their hearts. So you're right. We didn't. We didn't talk about this larger thing. And we actually, Jenny, did talk about it a little bit when you went in to write the song with Rishi because um, we didn't know the direction of the song, like the, the way that that was going to go. And so it was like, well, is it going to be like this song about smashing the patriarchy or like how the patriarchy does these things? Or is it going to be like more specific? And you were like, I want to keep it like rooted specifically in where it is rather than making it a larger m- metaphor song, which we do sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, solid point. Very, very solid point. Uh, I might, I might posit that the gentlemen are in such a state of post-mortem uh, decay that it's impossible to be certain that they're all white. <laughs> <laughs> they all are kind of like bluish, gray, and monstrous. That's and true. That's true. Just, that's true. just taking a peek. Right, right, and and I mean, I guess we will say that they are all men because their very name is the gentleman. But again. Right. You know, right. To kind of do we know? What do we know? Is does every person carrying a doctor bag? You know what I mean? Are we taking cues? No. Um <laughs> I, I'm we're now we're just now I'm being facetious. But um I, I definitely see this metaphor and actually during the like Kavanaugh hearings and all of that, um a lot we saw a lot of tweets of the image of Buffy holding up the whiteboard that says, How do I get my voice back? Which, you know, is yeah. And that that I mean, listen, everyone, that's the reason that if Jenny and I so chose, we could go through this series until we perished because (laughs) (laughs) I intend never to perish myself, but (laughs) well, because, because right. The truth of the matter is like, there's this hush has so many different things happening in it. And, and so many of the episodes do there's like, sort of like what's right in front of us. And then like, what's the larger thing. And also what's happening in the side story and what's happening in the arc of the whole series and, you know, on and on. So Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much, Natalie, for, for bringing this to us. And of course, we're going to take this opportunity in now hearing about this parallel between the gentleman as the patriarchy uh, with the patriarchy jingle. The patriarchy! <laughs> wow, Jenny. So here we are on the other end of the patriarchy jingle. 
was a long ride, but we made it. We did. That thunderclap gets me every time, you know? Uh. <laughs> and um, I think that it is about time that we take a stroll over into the land of Camden Toy. Camden, uh, you know, anytime you see the two gen- the two lead gentlemen, it is Doug Jones and Camden Toy. Um, yes. And so I got to talk to Camden as well. So we have some more, uh, more fun stories from things behind the scenes and uh, learn a little bit more about Camden's history and how he came to the role. Let's, let's get into it. Yes. Today's episode is brought to you by Regal Cinemas. If you're anything like me, you deeply enjoy going to the movies. Going to the movies is probably among my top three all-time activities. I love seeing films on the big screen. I also love being around other people who are watching the same movie with me at the same time. And of course, I love eating giant buckets of popcorn. If you feel the same and you like going to the theater, Regal Unlimited is something that just makes sense. Regal Unlimited is the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass. It pays for itself in two movie visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime, no blackout dates, no restrictions. When you want to watch a movie in 4DX or IMAX or RPX or ScreenX, there's so many ways to watch movies these days, your Regal Unlimited membership gets you into those premium experiences at a reduced cost. And with Regal Unlimited, you don't only save money on the tickets, you will also save on your snacks. And as previously mentioned, I love snacks. The only thing that can make me love a snack more is saving money on buying a snack. Members get 10% off of all non-alcoholic concession items with membership. Regal Unlimited, all you can watch movie subscription pass. It pays for itself in two visits. So if you're planning to see two movies this month, join Regal Unlimited and sign up now. You can sign up in the Regal app or on regmovies.com slash unlimited. Sign up for Regal Unlimited using code buffering and earn 10% off your three-month subscription. Please let us know about all of the movies you see and how the popcorn is. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Camden Toy, thank you so much for being a part of this interview with us today. Hush is many people's favorite episode of all time. And the gentlemen are, in my opinion, the scariest of all of the villains within the Buffy verse. Um, and it's just, thank you. Yes. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just such a joy to get a chance to talk uh, with, with both you and Doug. I mean, it's just a, a, such a treat. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So we're talking today about Hush and we're going to, you know, keep it mostly to Hush, but you have played, 
three characters in the Buffyverse, and and if we count Angel as the Buffyverse, which I think we do, four characters. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Let's start at the very beginning. Um, I would love to hear about like your training. How? You know, what is your history? I read that your your father worked in makeup, um, and I'm wondering if that influenced you and, and sort of how you got to the place that you are. Yeah, my father was actually uh, both an actor and a makeup artist, and uh, yeah, I got into his makeup kit when I was very young, and um, he instead of getting angry at me. He was uh, encouraging. He uh, he he was like, "Do you want me to show you how to use that?" And <laughs> he and I would sit at my mother's dressing table in front of her mirror and do makeup together. From the time I was in very early grade school, and um, this I think was sort of my first introduction to character through transformation and um, transformational makeup, and that was really my first I- introduction. And then. I don't know, a couple of years later, Dick Smith came out with his monster makeup handbook. <laughs> and I just, oh my God, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It, it was so much fun. It was uh, Monster, uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland uh, had, had published it and in, a, in magazine form. I think you can probably find it in like a hardback version now, but it's very hard to find. And um, then my father, when I was in third grade, uh, encouraged me to start taking acting lessons at the Pittsburgh Playhouse, which is where... He had studied. He and uh, Shirley Jones were in the same class together. They were very good friends. Wow. Yeah. And that's and then from there, I st- started hanging out at a summer theater um, until I was in my in, in, until I was in high school. Uh, every summer, I would just there. I would just hang out at the summer theater in the in the in the neighborhood, and that was kind of I kind of grew up in the theater in a in a way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love the image of you and your dad doing your makeup together at the table. It's like the, yeah. it's like the inverse of like the father and son, like shaving, like showing, like showing him how to shave. It's like, instead you were doing a makeup little. together. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. that's a, Yeah. Yeah. So you obviously have a long history with theater um, and with, you know, not only theater, but with makeup. And so is that, you know, did this role on Buffy come up and did you have an agent at the time who said like, Oh, Camden is perfect for this. Or how did that happen? Um, I think what happened was, uh, if I remember correctly, they were having trouble casting it. They weren't sure how to cast it because it was silent, silent characters. And I think, I think there were some, maybe some people on the show, they're going, well, you know, if they're silent, you can just, you can just use extras. Um, and, uh, I, I think it was Joss that was like, well, no, you, we need somebody who can really, you know, like really bring this to life, maybe kind of like a mime or something. And I do have mime background. Uh, Doug also has mime background. Um, when Doug and I were growing up, um, you really couldn't be in the theater and not get some mime training. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't think they really do that in uh, theatrical training anymore. But um, mime mime training was definitely part of what we we had as training. Um, and what happened was uh, my agent got got the call. I, got, I think they they put it out on like sort of a, a teletype kind of thing. And uh, my agent called me and said, hi, they want to see you tonight. And I'm, I'm like, what, tonight? And I was like, well, what about a script? And she was like, well, there's no script, just just go. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so that was um, that was a bit rocky. It was like, what, no script? But uh, we didn't fully understand that it was a, a totally silent uh, character until we got to, to the, the audition. And um, Lonnie Hammerman, and I think the original name of the, the, the gentleman was The Laughing Men. Oh, and wow. Lonnie was like, no. yeah. And Lonnie was like, we're, we're going to change that. There's no dialogue. There's no laughing. Um, we're not sure what, what we're going to call them yet. But uh, 
There's no dialogue. I'm like, okay. (laughs) What's incredible is that some of the most memorable um, scenes with the gentlemen, I think obviously apart from like the floating is when they're laughing, like they are, they're silently laughing, right? They do laugh. They just don't make noise. And it's so creepy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So Doug told us a little bit about the audition process and that you, were you there together for the audition? Yeah, we, I mean, we, we kind of met very briefly at the audition, although we didn't get a chance to talk, you know, uh, where we really kind of bonded was uh, at the, was at the costume uh, fitting. Um, but the, yeah, the audition was, was, they, they were like, uh, okay, here's the audition. They want you to float in and we're like, float in, okay. <laughs> And take out your, you know, your doctor bag and take a scalpel out and then cut this young man's heart out and then float back out. And all, all, all the while smiling. We were like, I was like, um, okay. <laughs> and um, I, I did my best to kind of approximate floating. Um, there's this like trick you can do where you, you, you move from the knees down, um, but you don't really move your upper body. So it, it has this illusion that you're sort of floating as opposed to walk. Because when we walk, we kind of bounce a little. Mm-hmm. So I kind of did that. I have, a, and Doug and I both have very kind of um, creepy smiles. <laughs> so um, I was doing that really, really big grin, you know, and I cut out the heart and I float back out. And Joss literally goes, oh, okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Oh, God, I'm going to have nightmares now. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, we and, all, um, we all, he put that upon all of us, actually. He was like, great, I'm going to have nightmares. Yeah. And now all the rest of you who watch the show will have nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> we, I, I want to talk a little bit about your experience on the set. Um, we know at this point, right, we've learned some of the, the tricks, if you will, that there were wires when we see your feet floating by, that like when we don't see yes. your feet, you're often on dollies that are rolling. And so I'm wondering if you have yes. any like stick out stories from, from the set, from this experience, this episode in particular. Yeah, the funny thing about the dollies was, um, you know, as an actor, you're always you always have to sort of hit your mark. And if you're on if if you're on a dolly, hitting your mark it has to do with the person that's controlling the dolly, not you. So uh, mm. it was kind of a funny thing. I, I that took a little while for the the crew and the ca- the crew to get used to that because they'd be like, "Oh, you didn't hit your mark," and we'd be like, "Well, talk to that guy over there." <laughs> <laughs> has nothing to do with us. <laughs> right. You're like, I have no but, control uh, over my bodily movement at this point. I'm in, in the hands of other yeah. people. Yeah, exactly. But the the scene where we're uh, floating slight on the slight, slightly down the hill to Tara when she's outside. Uh, and um, the very first shot we did with that, they actually, there, there's a slight hill. So we're going down, we're on a track and they're basically just controlling. It's a controlled roll down. But when they yelled cut, they, they didn't gently stop the, the dolly. They just kind of yanked it. And he and I both flew off the dolly. <laughs> yeah, we, it was, you know, just like, you know, kind of like whiplash when you're in a car kind of thing. Oh, my gosh. Because you, you, you weren't attached to the dolly at all. You were really like responsible no. for balancing yourselves on that as it moved. Yeah. One of our one of our listeners, Christian, wrote in on Twitter asking, was the set weirdly quiet during the shoot? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, it was quieter than a normal set, yes. And I think there was a certain amount of fear with the the cast, I think, kind of found us kind of creepy as well. <laughs> <clears throat> I think one of the things that uh, Amber Benson said, this was her first episode, on Buffy. And she said, you always think that, you know, when you see something in film, it's got to be less 
scary in person. And she said when she first saw us, she went, oh, my God, they were much scarier in person than they were actually in the final episode. And she was scared of us and creeped out, as I think was uh, most of the cast. I think the only cast member that wasn't really creeped out was Mark Lucas. He was he would hang out with us. But nobody else in the cast would hang out with us. They were all kind of creeped out. Well, now my life's mission is going to be to hunt down some photos of uh, Mark Lucas with the two with the two of you in makeup. <laughs> That'll really complete my life, I think, and, and all of our listeners' lives. <laughs> One of our listeners wrote in with, with a question that I think applies across your roles in the universe. Um, Bree wrote in to say, how do you emote and express so well through all of that makeup. Like, you know, it it has to be such a different experience to convey the emotion. I mean, in Hush specifically, not only are you working through makeup, but you're working without dialogue at all. So, so what are the, what are your, you know, tricks makes it seem like it's not a, a massive skill. Like what, what do you pull upon to convey that incredible emotion that you convey through all of that? Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that I think both Doug and I have to remind people is that we're we're actors first first and foremost we're actors and and I think we've been known as you know suit performers because we've you know we've done a lot of, and and of course Ed Doug even has done much more than I have in suits and in makeup and whatnot but we're really actors foremost mm-hmm. and we we're we're really lucky in that the the makeups that I've been in at least on on, on Buffy and Angel have been so incredible they're they're really they're really very thin makeups and they're really they're they're glued to every single millimeter of my face and neck and and whatnot Mm -hmm. so it really becomes like a second skin so um the idea of emoting through the makeup is it's 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 kind of a a misnomer actually because this makeup really becomes a second skin for you camden did you know the series before you began with hush like did you were you familiar with buffy or was that your introduction no, I, I had seen a number of episodes, not not a huge number, but I had seen a, a few episodes and was very intrigued by the show. Um, and like I said, I grew up, you know, doing monster makeup and really being just had a huge love for the universal monsters and whatnot. So, so yeah, I mean, the show definitely was something that uh, kind of piqued my interest. And so when I got that call to go in and audition, it was it was very exciting. And I imagine that, you know, the universe of Buffy is one that even though the show was on 20 years ago, it it still is such a vibrant, as we see with our work, it's such a vibrant community. Um, and I'm wondering if you still interact with the community, the Buffy community, do you go to cons? Do you, um, do, you do things like that and still interact with the other cast members and, and things of that nature? I see some of the other cast members periodically. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Doug is probably the one I see the most, but I, you know, I see Amber occasionally, um, I, I will see, you know, uh, James Marsters occasionally. I do still go to cons. They're, they're certainly not as many as there used to be, but there's, but certainly I, I still do, do go to cons. I do have a chance to, to um, interact with the fans up close and personal, which is, is always fun. One of the things I also uh, say to people, which I don't think people really understand, one of the reasons this show is probably more popular now than it's ever been is because each generation kind of passes it along to, you know, to the next. Uh, it's not unusual if I'm sitting at a con to, to sign autographs, I'll look up and there'll be three, sometimes four generations of women standing in front of me wanting my autograph. Wow. Um, and it's because, you know, the grandmother will pass it on to the daughter or the daughter will pass it on to the their daughter. And, and often they'll be like, oh, mom, I don't want to watch that silly show. And come on, I'm telling you, you're going to like it, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I, so I think that 
there it's really been kind of intergenerational in a way. Yeah. Yeah, we see that, I think, um, through the podcast. Actually, this podcast, our podcast is spoiler free um, because we have so many people who are coming to the series for the first time that we allow them to listen along with us. But yeah, but it is it is such a power. I mean, it's such a powerful thing. I also think one of the, the other reasons that it's surging is that we're in a time in the world where seeing good triumph over evil and seeing, you know, all sorts of big bads be battled down by a really badass woman is, you know, very, very on the nose for a lot of what we've been going through recently. Sure. So (laughs) somebody did ask, um, who was the easiest cast member to freak out or sneak up on in full makeup? If there were any, so I'm just going to ask, I don't know if you did that, but did you, did, were there, were there uh, any tricks? Uh, no, but that said, as I said earlier, Amber Benson was really freaked out by us and we thought she was kidding. I mean, Doug and I thought, you know, she'd be like, Oh, you guys are so scary. And we'd be like, Oh, oh stop. You know? <laughs> and we thought, we thought she was kidding. And her mother actually had to take us aside and say, guys, guys, stop going up to her. She really is scared of you. Yeah, she was really d- freaked out. <laughs> just, just, us, just our presence, just our presence or going up to speak with her would, would freak her out. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Doug brought up Amber's fear too. So um, when we get to the point in the series where we interview Amber, we're going to have to ask her about it, <laughs> get her perspective <laughs> as well. <laughs> is there anything else that you want to talk about specifically related to Hush? Um, I know we've touched on a few of the things, but um, if you have anything else you'd like to share with us, we are certainly all ears. Oh, um, well, I think one of the things that was kind of funny was that, um, they weren't, you know, the makeup people weren't sure uh, we as actors were going to be able to sustain that that smile. So the original idea of the makeup was that the smiles would be plastered on. They were like, smiles were like, they weren't really our, our mouths. They were, yeah. do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And in yes, fact, absolutely. if you look, there were four of us that had that and two of us, Doug Jones and I, actually had our actual mouths that we used. Um, and the, the way that happened was um, they were showing the makeup to, to Joss and getting his you know, final approval to sign off on it. And he was like, well, 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 wait a minute. The reason we hired Camden and Doug was because they both scared me so much in the room in broad daylight with no makeup. And now you're covering their smiles over with a, a fake smile. No, 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 mm-hmm. we, we can't do that. We need, we need their actual mouths. And, the, and this was like, you know, days before they were shooting, you know, major makeup change. So um, they uh, ended up changing the makeup for Doug and I, but keeping it the same for the other four uh, gentlemen. And uh, if you look, you really see there's a huge difference in what Doug and I are doing with the makeup because we have full articulation of our mouths. And so it's much more subtle. It It isn't just sort of plastered on smile. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's terrifying. The, the terror of the gentleman is like, I think the smile is one of the biggest pieces of it. And then I think the slow moving, like it's like yes. that, um, you know, that, that like I, I talked about it in our last episode, like a Michael Myers, like a, a villain or a, a monster that doesn't need to run, that just is going to catch you no matter what, which is so creepy. Yeah. And I think also what Joss really did with Hush was, I think he really tapped in to all of our childhood nightmares. I mean, who among us has not had the nightmare of these weird creatures trying to get to you and you can't scream and you can't run away? Yeah. 
it's a childhood it's a childhood nightmare that i think most people can really relate to either uh, on a conscious or an unconscious level and i think that's one of the reasons why it's so scary because i think it really works on the unconscious in a way that you're not of course since it's unconscious you're not aware of yeah absolutely yeah so it's very visceral well, Camden, um, you go down in many of our minds as uh, definitely the thing that can keep us up at night <laughs> via this monster, via the gentleman, of course. And, you know, it's just I think that this episode, as you mentioned, Hush is one of the most respected episodes of the whole series. It's so brilliant. And what a delight to get to hear some of the behind the scenes and to just get to talk to you about your process in creating um, these, these, you know, monsters that just really do, really do keep us up at night. Um, can you tell people if people want to follow you, um, or find you is, are there places they can do that? Or, or do you want to talk about any of the work that you're doing right now? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I can be found on, on Facebook. I'm the only Camden toy on Facebook, so it's easy to find. <laughs> and on Twitter, I'm, uh, Camden, uh, underscore toy. So you can follow me at either of those places. Fantastic. Well, thank you again so very much. Um, such a delight to talk to you, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Oh, my goodness. How delightful. It's like, how nice is it that these two uh, humans who play two characters who keep us all awake at night are actually <laughs> just so, so lovely. Lo so lovely. Thank so God. Lovely. Also, Jenny, how lovely do you feel now knowing that everyone on that set was keeping their distance from the terrifying gentleman except for your boyfriend, Mark Blucas? <laughs> old old uh, yellow lab Mark Blucas running around sniffing their hands <laughs> like, well, do you guys have any treats? <laughs> you seem fine. <laughs> oh, also, I love that Amber Benson was, was afraid. <laughs> exactly. Same. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, I, I mean, for two, like we're talking about, right. I'm talking to these two gentlemen, uh, 20 years after 19, however many years we are many, many, many years after the filming of Hush. And so, you know, it's, it has to be like a pretty big memory, to, to sit with you for that long. And so the fact that both of them completely independent of each other were like, you know what I remember? <laughs> I remember that Amber Benson was terrified of us. <laughs> Just like really makes me, I can't, I'm really hoping that we do get to talk to Amber Benson uh, down the line. And boy, oh boy, am I going to ask that question when I get the opportunity, if I get the opportunity to speak with her, because I want to hear about how afraid she was of them. Yes, yes, yes. Speaking <sighs> of Amber Benson and thus speaking of Tara, we got an email from Shauna in the UK, uh, Nottingham to be specific, and uh, Shauna wrote in to say, I'm about halfway through the podcast and I can't believe you didn't mention the scene with Tara. I love that this person wrote us an email mid-listen. <laughs> they were like, fucking pause. Compose <laughs> pause. email. Clack, 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 clack. Pardon me. Like, uh, what I'm if we had gotten to it at the end? We didn't, but what if we, we, we did not? So you were right to ask, Shauna. But okay, so Shauna writes, I'm about halfway through the podcast, and I can't believe you didn't mention the scene with Tara wandering through the college, carrying her books in the morning. She clearly has no clue what's going on, as she probably hasn't tried to speak to anyone all morning, and she's just wandering through, business as usual, with no idea why everyone is being weird and jumpy. 
It just breaks my heart every time. Her innocence that she's just going about her college day all on her own with no clue that if she did want to speak to someone, she couldn't. It's one of the scenes that sticks in my mind most about Tara and one of the things that drew me to the character in the first place. Love the show so much, you guys. Uh, great episode this week. Okay, so is this how you read the scene? Christy you, with with Tara wandering through uh, the common area. You know, I, I like so I had to go back because like when I read the email, I was like, oh my god, this is like such an incredible analysis, and and like how did I miss it? Especially God, I mean, hush, we watched probably more than any of the episodes over and over and over again, and mm -hmm. I don't think I did. Like I think that's I don't know it. Like now now rewatching it, I get it and it makes sense. But when I watched it in the beginning, like we're set up with so many scenes of like they all know. And and so I read the right. scene as like she like she's just she's being our witness to this moment, this like sad moment, not that she's finding out for the first time. But it does make sense. I mean, it, Tara is not having conversations with a lot of people. I just don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't read it that way upon first watch or fifth watch or 20th watch. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're just getting to know Tara. So it's, it's hard to say. Um, she's definitely definitely doesn't do a ton of talking so it's conceivable uh that she hasn't even tried to talk to anybody that morning right right and you i mean you know and please write us more emails sean is like pausing right now again just to be like, excuse me <laughs> excuse me <laughs> um but i i do think that the scene can be read both I, I think it's flexible in that like when when i went back and watched it with this knowledge i was like oh totally i could totally see this and like knowing tara you know i could totally see this but um i also think that you know in in situations where there's like trauma happening and like whatever that this is also a believable response from her that she's known but she hasn't like understood the impact it's kind of like it mirrors the scene that we see with that with willow and and buffy they know right but they're walking down that main street in sunnydale and it's it's like pulling in the information not only that this has happened but that this is having an effect that ripples uh so so yeah but i i was really excited to to read this email yeah uh, do you know what else I was really excited to do, Jenny? <gasps> what? What were you excited to do? I was so excited to get the chance to sit down with you and Rishi and talk about this week's song. Yes. However, did you get through to my agent? I mean, it how did you took, set this interview up? It took a long time. I really had to knock on a lot of doors, had to do a lot uh -huh. of favors. But I got there and uh, managed to sit down with both of you. Uh, and so I think unless you have anything left that you'd like to say about Hush, uh, I think we should maybe hear that conversation about the creation of this song, or I should say songs. Absolutely. Let's do it. We need to talk. We need to talk. Hey, Rishi. Hi. Hi, Jenny. Hello. Thanks uh, for sitting down with me so that myself and our listeners can learn more about the genius that uh, went into making the song. Thank you so much for having me back. I am so honored to be back on the show. Rishi. Wow. You can come on our show any day. Any day. Literally any day. Like you could we'll call us. it up to seven episodes a week yep. if you want to just come by. <laughs> Anytime you want to talk about Buffy or just really anything, just give us a shout. All right. You're on. Okay. Your schedule is pretty clear, right? I mean, I text you both all the time. Yeah. So <laughs> you can tell how clear my, my schedule is. <laughs> 
Um, I wanted to, there's like a couple of things that I want to talk to you both about that I believe our listeners would be psyched to, to learn. Um, but I figured we could start at the very beginning and just learn from both of you sort of where you got your start in music and what your relationship to music is, your, you know, your history that got you here. Fair enough. Rishi, you can start. Okay. Rishi's first. Um, I, cause I'm older. Um, <laughs> I started playing music when I was six. Um, my, my parents signed me up for piano lessons and uh, I used to take piano lessons at the mall. Um, <gasps> and we didn't have a piano. And my sister drew a piano, like the, the shape of a piano on a piece of paper. And so I would practice by pl- putting my fingers on the piano. So shout out to my sister for, you know. You can't my... see Jenny or I, but we're both in various positions of melting. Like <laughs> <laughs> heads to the that sky. That is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I went from piano to playing drums in high school. Uh, I started playing in bands and then um, I wanted to write songs. And so I started, I started to learn guitar, t- taught myself guitar so that I could write songs. And then in college, I started making records and touring um, with bands. And a couple of my friends started a record label with me. And, uh, and then making music after I got out of college, I realized that was what I wanted to do with my life. And then my, my goal sort of after that was to do whatever I could to, um, to do whatever I could to, um, figure out how to make it, make it my full-time gig. And then, um, after putting out a few records, I, I have a project called the 1am radio that I've been doing since I was basically since I was a teenager. And, uh, after putting out a few records and then 2007, um, that was really the year that, that I feel like I became uh, a full-time musician. That was when music stopped being the side hustle and started being the main gig and everything else that I was doing to try and support myself, you know, kind of, uh, took second place to that. Right. Right. So, the 1AM radio is something that you've been doing since you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. So where did the title come from then? I mean, I'd be interested regardless, but I want to know like where teenage Rishi's mind was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, my name is Rishi K. Sherway, which is not an easy name for people to deal with uh, usually. And, um, and also, <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't want to use that as my, as my performing name. And also there was something about it that um, I... I just felt like there was a chance to have a title. I really like titles and there was a chance to say something, you know, from the outset um, or, you know, make some kind of statement of intent with the, what your name was. And um, and I was really into like Smog and Cat Power who all, you know, were people like that, uh, singer-songwriters who performed under sort of non-singer-songwriter kind of monikers. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do that. And then um, the One Am Radio kind of came from uh, this memory of my memories of my dad um, and I going to pick up my mom from work. You know, she used to work nights at Sears and we would go and uh, pick her up and I would be in my pajamas and my dad would be in the front listening to listening to AM radio. And uh, that was really sort of like the sound that like that's the soundtrack of memory for me is the sound of AM radio. And um, and and it was something that would happen late at night. I was a kid, so late at night, it was, probably, it was like nine o'clock at night. Right. But by the time, you know, <laughs> by the time I was 19, I was like, oh, late at night, you know, one one in the morning. And then I liked, just as a nerd about uh, words, I liked the intersection of 1 a.m. and a.m. radio. And so I could have, you know, 1 a.m. radio. So good. Also, I'm really glad that we got the story about you in your pajamas. <laughs> Way to pick up your mom from yeah. Sears. It's very endearing. It's about the same time as, you know, the the drawing of the piano keys. Oh, God. Just too much. <laughs> Jenny, how are you going to tell us about your history? You've got to say something cute. 
<laughs> no, but but our our listeners um, know a lot about you. They know you know your favorite phrases like "wow, wow, wow, wow." Yes, a classic. Um, but but you don't get the chance very often to talk about how you came to music. So so enlighten us all. Well, there I was in junior high writing a lot of poetry, and then uh, my stepbrother was running a guitar shop out of his basement. And uh, he loaned me a guitar and taught me some chords. And at the time, I was playing the tuba in band, of course. And he was like, how are you going to be in a rock band uh, if you play the tuba? And it hadn't yet occurred to me that I should be in a rock band. <laughs> uh, but both the availability of the guitar <laughs> and then the mere suggestion that I could be in a rock band changed uh, my focus. Uh, so I started playing and writing songs and oh god it's a whole thing um <laughs> and oh, oh i made a terrible i shouldn't even be saying this publicly i made a regrettable uh album in high school of songs that hopefully no one can find <laughs> and i have just so that everyone knows i've tried for years to somehow get this album into like digital form so that i could use it for not gonna happen <laughs> yeah not gonna happen i was unsuccessful Bob. i've got nothing absolutely not uh and then i went to college for music and i met all of my future collaborators uh and uh made my first record there and where was that uh at suny purchase um north of new york city in westchester county a lot of like really incredible music people have come out of Sydney sure. Purchase. Yep, absolutely. Very true. Uh Mitski, of course. Uh friend of the Pod Mal Blum. Yes. Regina Spector, yes. Moby, Dan Voice Deacon. of Voice of Willow, Bess Rogers. Voice of Willow, Bess Rogers, for sure. Um, and whatever. Then I did some other stuff and now here we are. Well, thank you for telling us that tale. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I think the key takeaway is that siblings are really important to the to the process. True. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Very true. A lot of sibling help all around. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about Hush, right? I kind of want to leave this open for you both. You sat down, um, and then like, what was the what was the beginning of the process? Did you wait? Have I have a question actually before you ask your questions. That's fair. Um, I was so excited to get a message from the two of you asking me to work on this song for this episode. Th this is a big episode, so you know that that was I was felt really honored. How did you decide that you wanted to ask me to do this? Because we love you so much. That's Gen that's true. But do you have sort of did you have do you have people in mind to collaborate on certain songs for certain episodes the way you might pick guests to discuss certain episodes? Yeah, I mean I think we you know we're never like super far ahead of ourselves but we've been thinking about hush for a really long time and not knowing what was what. And then I think what happened is that Jenny and I were talking about the fact that we wanted this to be like heavily instrumental and like that we wanted the vocal to pull out. Um, and we just knew you and knew your music and smart dude, cool guy, tight music chops. Shuts up when you tell him to. I mean, and I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that either of us, I mean, I, I want to hear from both of you about your, uh, collaboration experience but I've I know you both so I've heard that it went really well and I don't think anyone anticipated that it would be like as magical as it turned out we knew it was going to be really great but what you two hit on I think is just incredibly special so so yeah so tell us so so we called you up we were like Rishi will you do this um with Jenny and then what was the process Jenny did you talk to Rishi before you went over for the first time or did you just kind of like sit down and and dig in uh we got on the phone and we talked about 
instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about where we were going to do it, and I bullied Rishi into letting me come over and work at his house so I could hang out with Watson at the same time. Uh, Watson is Rishi's dog, in case anyone in the universe doesn't know I, Watson yet. You <laughs> must know. Surely yeah. you must know. Um, and then we talked about what I was going to bring over, and it was very it very much was like the kind of thing where I was like, well, I've got the, oh, you, you told me what you have at your place. And then I was like, okay, here are the things that I have that you don't have. So I'll bring all of those things. And um, we probably won't, I think you said, we probably won't use any of them. And I feel like we didn't we touch didn't, yeah. any of them. Yeah. We sort of, we had this discussion that was kind of like packing for a vacation. When you start <laughs> yeah. to imagine, you know, when you bring the six books that you're going to read and the four sets of workout clothes because you're going to work out every single day. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, just like the most optimistic sort of vacation <laughs> planning. We kind of did that with uh, with what gear we were going to use for this song. We're, you know, just to have. Right. Um yeah, so Jenny showed up with um, 16 things, and um, and yeah, we even said, we're like, it's just going to be, we're just going to play acoustic guitar and <laughs> write that way, and that's what exactly what happened. Yeah. So the two of you, one of you had the guitar, or you both had a guitar? Like, what does it look like? We both had guitars. We both had guitars. <sighs> two guitars and a waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I think what we did was, uh, Rishi has this great nylon string guitar this tiny little yamaha i think that's what we started on yeah you were playing your your electric guitar unplugged yeah so uh, i like to be private in my (laughs) just don't look at me don't make me plug it in just i'm doing my thing please um yeah and i played and i think i played the little acoustic guitar yes 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 I just had an idea for yes jenny sorry i just want to say that i watched the episode before i went over and i took longhand notes and i was like very ready to talk about stuff. And then I got there and Rishi had a bunch of typed notes and <laughs> was like, so I was thinking a lot about the themes of uh, this episode and here are some things that we could, it was very, you were more prepared than anyone has ever been uh, <laughs> in relation to anything having to do with this podcast other than Kristen. Um, <laughs> my, my notes were really, all I did was go through, watch the episode. And then anytime somebody used the word, uh, Anytime anybody talked about talking, mm. I wrote down that dialogue just to see what, you know, what lines were specifically about communication. Can you believe this guy? No. Uh, and then I thought that could be, you know, maybe we could use, <sighs> turn some of that into lyrics or whatever. Think about that as a uh, starting off point. So let's, let's talk about lyrics and also the approach with lyrics, right? Because you both knew going in, right, that, the, that there was going to be a middle section of the song that didn't have lyrics. That's right. So, so <laughs> anything out. worth doing is worth doing well. <laughs> anything that's worth singing unnecessarily. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but did you go like? Was that a conscious decision for a particular reason? Like, did you want to write all the lyrics first to inform something else, or? I guess the the, the decision to take the lyrics out or take the vocals out seemed like more of an arrangement decision than a songwriting decision. Totally. And so um, the song still has to exist before you arrange it a particular way. Even if at one point, you know, oh, the human voice is singing this part. Okay, now piano is playing that part. The part still has to be made. Right. And and technically, it was supposed to be words that were being said. You know, just like in the episode, you can tell usually from context or from what they're mouthing, the things that people are trying to say to each other, even if you can't hear it. Right, right. Totally. 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 <laughs> it's totally the new wow. Yeah. <laughs> 
I had an idea for Johnny and I have talked about um, when we get to the end of the series, we're just going to start right back at the beginning again and uh-huh. do it all over again. So if we do that, my idea for the next time we do a Hush song is that you both have to create the song without, without talking to each other. Yes, without oh. talking to each other at all. I'm into that. Me too. Great. Great. So in I think we would 17 be pretty good. Years, we, uh, yeah, I think we've got a thing going. Yeah, we were on, we were really on the same page in a way that, that was delightful and surprising. I mean, not surprising. Yeah, I just didn't know that it could it would be that seamless. The thing that was my favorite part about this process was um, often for me when I'm when I'm trying to write a song, there comes a moment where I'll have an idea and then I kind of hit a wall and I'm like, I don't know what comes next. And either you have to put the song away or you just, you know, try and uh, white knuckle your way through it or something. But there's a part where it kind of stops being fun. You get really excited about the idea and then you play it like a million times and you're like, and then what's the next part? I don't know. And it becomes less fun. Um, and that moment never happened here because as soon as I would start to approach that wall and have that lull and like before I even got to the point where I would say, I don't know what comes next, Jenny would just immediately have an idea and I would be excited about that, that idea. So we kind of stayed on the, the highs, um, the whole time and, and never had that moment of, um, of just being frustrated or being stuck, um, which was pretty incredible. Jenny, what was your experience going in? Hard agree. Because you, I mean, you both collaborate frequently with other humans, or at least I know, Jenny, you do. I actually don't know. I made that up about you, Rishi. I, I never actually had an experience like this. Um, it was really, really, really cool. It tra- it translated. I mean, I know I'm only one person, but uh, I'm usually a very involved person, even when perhaps my involvement is necessary. And the first time that Jenny sent me what you had worked on after the first session, I was like, I actually am going to bow out of doing <laughs> anything because this is ma-. like it, you could just tell right from the get go that there was something magic happening um, that needed to just happen, you know. So, yeah, it was really nice. You, um, we sort of compared these notes, the my notes and Jenny's notes and what we were maybe going to do. And I had I had, had this idea. Um, I had this idea about dialogue that maybe we could both play finger-picked guitar and the two guitar parts would sort of mm. um, interlock or something like that. And um, and so that was how we ended up on the two guitars. But oh, yeah. um, that, then we were trying to do that, but then we were just sort of just figuring out chords. And I had had one idea for a chord. I was like, this is where I thought we could start, or maybe uh, two chords. And then, and then Jenny was like, oh, and then how about this chord as the third chord? And then I was like, how about this chord for the fourth chord? And, uh, and then we were kind of off and running and then we were just strumming it, and then Jenny had uh, the idea for the vocal melody, and she just started hum. She started humming something, and uh, it was almost absentmindedly. But I was like, "That's awesome! That's great! Your first instincts are so good!" And uh, and she came up with that that melody. And then there were two images from the episode. You know, the the moment where I was like, "Where does this start?" Okay, it starts with Buffy having this uh, this realization about you know what she has to talk to with Riley. I don't know. There, there was some. Uh, I felt like we needed to set, create the setting, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, where is she? What, where? What's the thing? And so then I just suggested those. I kind of filled in the a couple of words for the notes that Jenny was singing, and then we felt like we were kind of it was already taking shape. And that was in the first like forty five minutes. Yeah, it wow. all happened so fast. Wow. And then like pretty quickly, you also had the idea that the the chorus should just be like, we need to talk. Because of the scene at the end of the episode, right? Which is like so heavy when they've gotten their voices back and uh, they sit down because they have to like deal with the information that they now have about each other. 
Um, and now that they have their voices back, obviously they like are having a hard time yeah. saying whatever it is they have to say. There's something about that we have to talk to that's so powerful, I think, because it's like, you know, like many phrases uh, when you're using language, you can say it and it can mean something different with every turn of the phrase. And so it's like the chorus being this repetition of the same phrase, but you know, it can mean so many things. When you both work on lyrics, I mean, that is sort of like a one idea that you've repeated, but the verses are really gorgeous and complicated. And I'm just wondering, like, are you sitting in a room in a Google document together? Like, what was your process lyrically? Yeah. Yes, we were staring at a Google Doc together. Um, Rishi had the idea to use the uh, repeating word to, like, have a word that was sort of like a 90 degree angle in the the verse phrases like I've been up up all night I've been up up all night I've been pacing lost and tongue-tied what's the word to reveal mm. um, and like that happens kind of throughout the song a word repeats sometimes it's the has the same meaning you know or it's just like a broken phrase like that where you repeat a word but sometimes it it's a you know a homophone or or being used slightly differently um, which was challenging to keep up throughout the song but ultimately so great to do great job thanks <laughs> great job using the word homophone in this interview thank you also um i think both of you are probably so pleased that we that we didn't set out to write um a an emotional romantic song from buffy to riley uh, as two haters of Riley, I'm sure yeah. you're both thrilled. Yes, I feel like finally in I'm in the majority in this podcasting room. <laughs> the real horror, the real moment of horror was uh, as we figured out the places where my voice might come in. And um, and I realized that I was filling in for Riley. Like in the moments where, you know, um, Jenny uh, as a singing Buffy's point of view is saying we need to talk and then and then the answer is she says it again but then I also join in and say we need to talk like at the end of the scene you know the, right. the two of them both sort of agree and I was like oh my god <laughs> I, I get to sing on this podcast and, I, and it has to be Riley really uh, see, I, I actually made the conscious decision in my mind that it could be Riley but that it could also be like the looming presence of the gentleman Kristen has decided that canonically I, you are not specifically Riley in this I, song so that we can have you back and you can be someone else oh, specifically that, that reason and also because I refuse you hate Riley yeah. <laughs> refuse to give Riley any canon anything uh -huh, in our universe uh -huh. he got one jingle and it's about going away uh -huh. Jenny's been tasked with if she wants to write him a, a hunk jingle but I haven't seen anything come from that yet so. okay good Counter counterpoint I think then I am the I am some compartmentalized part of Buffy's id that yeah. just pops up Every now and then. Hell yeah. Wow. Yeah. So well, in that case, we're going to need you a lot. We're going to need you for a lot of backup. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to write myself a meaty part. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I liked about writing this is um, it, like, I felt like it was coming a little bit out of my own relationship. My, I am a very verbal person and um, my wife is not. And, um, and we've been married for seven years and we've been together for um for 11 and um and trying to sort of navigate my way through a life with someone who doesn't turn towards you know mm -hmm. as their primary way of communicating has been really uh tricky and 
and I was thinking about a lot of that, you know, when we were coming up with the lyrics for this, you know, a lot of it, the information is there on the screen and you know these characters and stuff, but, but a lot of it, you know, um, when we were trying to just write a song, not just write a song about the show, um, I was th thinking about sort of the general themes about um, the failures of communication. A lot of that came from from that. It was a nice nice to have that experience um, with someone to be able to draw on that too. Yeah, for this. yeah, definitely. Well, I collected both Rishi and Lindsay's charts uh, in the days oh. that I spent. Oh, my household, God. And I wanted to let everybody know that while they have a 10 out of 10 uh, in money on their compatibility nice. meter <laughs> and a 9 out of 10 romantic attraction, they only have a 3 out of 10 in communication. Wow. Holds up. Yeah. Must be. Yeah. <laughs> the stars always do, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you put two queer women at the helm of the podcast. You, know? <laughs> you sit down to talk about music. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm a Sagittarius. And... <laughs> Um, well, maybe uh, one last thing before before we go. Rishi, we didn't get to talk to you about the episode, and I'm wondering, like, what your feelings on Hush are, and also if this, like, is this one of your favorites? How, how What's your relationship to Hush? I love this episode. I mean, I love stunt episodes kind of in, in general because it just, I think it, uh, not for the sake of the stunt necessarily, but just because I think the writers end up, when they have the the freedom to do something new, a lot of really cool things come out. Um, I just watched uh, episode six of season five of BoJack Horseman. <gasps> That's exactly what I was going to say. And, oh, know, wait. Episode six you of haven't, season five? Yeah, I haven't you haven't seen, seen it yet. That's the one oh, I told you is real man. messed up. Well, the one I was thinking of is in what season? Season three, the underwater episode? Yeah, yes. the underwater episode. Exactly, yeah. So similar, like BoJack is a show that does a great job of having these these sort of, I mean, I feel it feels unfair to call them stunts, but they have these episodes where they break the format and they do something really unusual and they do it really well. And those often end up being the, my favorite episodes of the season. Yeah. And um and I think it's not because I don't like the normal one, but just I think when you're given that freedom, like really cool things come out. And I think that's the case with Hush. Totally, totally. This is definitely one of the my favorite episodes. I think it's one of the most memorable episodes. And um, and that that's part of the reason why I was so excited that this was one that you asked me to to write on. Yeah, yes, it seemed yes. big and important, just like you. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Um, well, Rishi, I obviously thank you so much for, for working on this and for sitting down with us to talk. Um, and thank you both for making this beautiful thing. It was such a joy. It was such an awesome experience. Um, and yeah, thanks to both of you. Yeah. Rishi, can you please tell our listeners if they, if they don't know already where they can find more of what you do in all mediums? Mm -hmm. Um, I have a bunch of music stuff, just sort of a collection of different things that I've done from the different projects, um, all on my website, which is rishikesh.co. Um, if you can figure out how to spell that, then you can find that stuff. Uh, Feel free to spell it. I spell my middle name all the time. Oh, okay. It's H-R-I-S-H-I-K-E-S-H, <laughs> rishikesh.co. Um, and yeah, there's a bunch of, there's links to the music stuff that I do and then also um, podcast stuff that I do. I make Song Exploder and I make a show called The West Wing Weekly and I'm on Twitter at Rishi Hirway and Instagram also at Rishi Hirway. You yes, can find you should me follow there. all those things and listen to all those things because Rishi rules. I'm Jenny Owen-Youngs and when I'm not making this podcast with Kristen, I am making songs. You can learn more about me and hear some of those songs at JennyOwenYoungs.com slash buffering and you can always give me a shout on Twitter 
at Jenny Owen Youngs. Yes, and I am Kristen Russo. You can find me over at kristinnoline.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-N-O-E-L-I-N-E. You can learn about the work that I do with LGBTQ communities and their families. Uh, and you can also use that spelling that I just uh, illustrated for you here uh, to find me on Twitter and on Instagram. Buffering the Vampire Slayer is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BufferingCast. And you can always drop us an email at BufferingTheVampireSlayer at gmail.com. You can support what we do here in many ways. Um, first of all, you can join our Patreon family. Go to our website, BufferingTheVampireSlayer.com. Click on Patreon and you can join at one of four levels. You get all sorts of fun things. You can join us for Buffy watches, just like this one that we did for Hush. Um, you can also get the songs in advance of their release at the end of the season. Uh, you can also support us by going over to our store, which you can also find on our website, uh, and purchasing, you know, a pair of socks for yourself, a Smash the Demon Lizard Patreon. Yeah, there's so many things there's so many things to buy and if you are um wanting to support us without dollars that's also great go on over to itunes and rate and review us okay well we're about to roll over into the second version of hush which has all of the words uh, that you'll be hearing for the first time and so before we do that um we've asked rishi if he would howl out with us for this very special episode please i'll conduct okay okay, okay. till next time uh woo What's next? I've been up, up all night I've been pacing, lost and tongue-tied What's the word to reveal All the unsaid things I feel But I keep quiet Can't even try it If you knew, knew the truth Where I go at night without you If you saw, saw the scars and heard all the ugly parts Would you still want me? How it haunts me Darling Whenever I try to tell you My voice gets cut I've been Breaking down doors to reach you But the
listen to me when I'm fishing for what I might mean that my actions speak for me. Free me, let's dream of a dream where it's easy to say what we mean, not these empty words where everything hurts and all I can do is scream. to try to find ways to find peace and art and love and connection in the midst of the chaos of life. So that's life writing. I am so excited to have comic and daily show correspondent Roy Wood Jr. Well, hello. That joke was birthed from my trip to the African-American Smithsonian in DC, which that was the first time I saw something where, all right, on this floor, it's nothing but good news. Mm. We've gone through slavery, we've gone through desegregation and emancipation proclamation and reconstructing but on this floor beyonce michael jordan Issa ray thank you for coming <laughs> come and join us on life writing for more stories like these and the tools writers need to make yourself the hero or heroine of the adventure of your life life writing is available wherever you get your podcasts